I just came up here, and my little clock that is up here, you didn't know I had a clock, did you? But my, the little clock is flashing. I don't know what that means. Some would say the clock up here doesn't mean anything anyway, but, uh, but I think it's the right time, so we'll, we'll go with that. It was Tuesday of this week when uh, Connie asked me, like she uh, often does at some point during the week, so how's the sermon going? And uh, my response to her was, this is really a hard passage. So I don't know if you've read it yet or not. Now, some weeks when I, I look at a passage, and I've, I've been outlining passages and exegeting passages a long time, and sometimes the outline practically jumps out of, you know, out of the Bible, and uh, the exegesis comes uh, just... Uh, easier than other times, but then there are, are occasions like the early part of this week where you're just kind of scratching your head and uh, trying to figure out where, where was he going with this? What, why, why did God say it that way uh, through the Apostle Paul? And so my typical week I try to write uh, most of my sermon, outline it, and write most of it uh, before I start looking at commentaries. And so, uh, Connie asked me that on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, I started looking at the commentaries. Now, I told you about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, he's the one that took 13 years to preach through Romans, and I promised you that it wouldn't, it wouldn't take us that long. Uh, but I looked at his commentary, and it's always helpful. He, he was just a, an amazing expositor of the Scripture. But these were the first words out of his mouth uh, in that chapter when he was presenting it. He said, Now this, it is generally agreed is one of the most difficult passages, not only in the epistle to the Romans, but in the whole of Scripture. Now, I had two reactions out of that. The first one is, yes! Okay, well, if the, you know, probably the greatest expositor and uh, preacher in the English language in the uh, 20th century says that that made me feel better that, uh, that I was struggling. But then the other immediate, immediate response was just the reminder of how we have to utterly depend upon God when we go into uh, the Word of God, if we're, if we're to grasp it at all. So before I even read it today... Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you, we first of all thank you for your word. What grace it was for you to, to preserve it for us 
so that, so that we can hear from you and we can know <clears throat> your will and we can understand more of who you are and of what you have done. But Lord, we, we need the illumination of your precious Holy Spirit. We need him to teach us today, to clarify, to help us to focus. And we thank you that you, you've told us that your word is, is understandable. And so, Lord, we are utterly dependent upon you to be our teacher. And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In Romans 3, we read this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in, hum in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you see what I mean? <laughs> At first glance. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that we, we, we're not going to get anything out of this. Because sometimes it's those passages that are, uh, when you first read them, they almost seem obscure and you wonder where in the world is he going that, that he can use in, in the greatest way in our hearts. So let's remind ourselves where we are in Romans. And uh, for the most part, we're going to be taking bigger chunks of Romans uh, uh, from here on through with some occasional exceptions to that. But what we have here is Paul is still in the uh, the. Uh, what those who have outlined the book generally consider the, the first section of Romans. He is continuing to explain why man needs what we have called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, not from within. <clears throat> why is that necessary? And he is answering this from one angle and another angle, and he's about to seal it in what we will see uh, next week. He is answering the question, why did Jesus need to go to the cross? And he's doing that for the, 
the church in Rome and for any others that would be uh, reading the book. He had just, in a sense, uh, rebuked the Jewish view of righteousness uh, for those Jews that, that felt like it came from obeying the law, that that's where we get our righteousness, that it, it comes from circumcision or it comes from my obedience to the law. And he had dealt with that uh, uh, a number of different ways in, in looking at it. Um, so now... He's about to ask and answer several questions. Now, I want you to note that in this little dialogue he sets up, he's not setting up a straw man. You know what a straw man is. Uh, we see it a lot, especially in political season, where uh, in a debate or, or uh, someone will set up an argument that they know they can answer and that they can destroy that argument. Now, it may not even be the real argument or the real issue, but, uh, but they will set that up, and it's called a straw man because he's made of straw and he can be easily dispersed and uh, gotten rid of. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't set up a, a, a straw man. Uh, in fact, he throws out these objections that he knew Jews would have. In other words, he knew that, that, that those were, that were coming to the faith or struggling with the possibility of the faith that had Jewish background <clears throat> would quickly throw up this objection and uh, want it answered before they'd go any further. Um, it's interesting, I've, and I've read this se several places, and I don't know any school specifically, but uh, I have read that uh, various law schools have in the past uh, looked at portions of Romans just to see the argumentation uh, because of how amazing it is. And, and this, no doubt, is one of those sections where he uh, sets up an objection and then he deals with it. Now, one of the things about this argumentation is that it's, it's so accurate because Paul understood the Jewish mind. Because before his conversion, he was a Jew. He was now a converted Jew. And so, I even think it's possible that with these objections, what he is doing is he's dialoguing with maybe some of the very objections that he had in his own mind to the gospel when he was Saul before his conversion. And so he's answering his old self before he came to know Christ. And in so doing, he's addressing uh, those Jews who are still struggling with this gospel that he's presenting. So let's, let's take a look at the objections. Uh, uh, the, the first one being, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Here's how he put it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? 
Now, he's already talked about circumcision and how that doesn't even make you a Jew just because you have that outward sign. And it certainly doesn't bring you righteousness just because you have that outward sign. And in fact, later on in the book, in uh, chapter, he's going to expand on that big time in terms of defining what a Jew is uh, in, in chapters 9 through 11. And just a, a little hint, he's going to say, you know what a real Jew is? One who shares the faith of Abraham. And so what that means, he's going he's to flesh out and he's going to say, what that means is you may not have any Jewish blood, but you're really you who trust in Christ alone. You are God's chosen people. Okay? So, uh, he's gonna, he'll get into that later, but, but for now he's beginning to uh, address that. Now, I'm, I'm very conscious that, uh, well, I, I don't know for sure, but I doubt that there's anybody here today who came with that as their burning question. Right? So what good is it to be a Jew? I doubt that that's your question. So how really does this fit with us? Well, I think the, the question that would be more pertinent for us is, well, what good is it to be in the church then? If, you know, if getting baptized doesn't put you in better stead with God, if, if being an officer, if maybe teaching class, if attending worship, what, is there any good then for us in being in the church? Well, we know that external signs do not equate with faith. None of those things will cause God to say, okay, you've checked those boxes and now I consider you to be righteous. By the way, earlier we read that, remember, that salvation in the Old Testament was like salvation in the New. And so we're seeing a, a continuity, a continuity there. So you might think that Paul's answer is, to, is going to be, yeah, there, it doesn't do you any good to be a Jew. But that's not his answer. Now, he says something similar to that later. But his, his answer here to that question, what advantage has the Jew or what value circumcision? His answer is in verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Entrusted. They were given to them to be used as it was intended. What are the oracles of God? Well, that's the Old Testament. Now, for us, we'd say we've been given the Old and the New Testament. But for them, at that point, he was talking about the Old. Now, remember back in chapter 1, Paul had talked uh, about God revealing himself in nature, and uh, we talked about natural revelation and how 
Uh, we, can, we can know certain things about God's. We can know enough to where it leaves us without excuse. But we also realize that there, there was the need for us to know more if we're to know of Christ, if we're to know the specifics of the gospel, the, the very nature of God, then we need the Word of God. And so, here we see Paul reminding them, look, you've, you've got an advantage over those who were out there that never had the Old Testament. You know what God is like. You know His names. You know His nature. You know His grace. And you know His love. What do you mean? What good is it to be a Jew? So here's the question for us. If you're not saved by being a church member, is there any advantage to being a part of a, a church family? What advantage is there? Now, if you grew up in the church, you may take this for granted more than those who didn't grow up in the church or didn't have church background. But I, I hear this statement, and I hear it frequently, and that is when somebody's going through a difficult time, I don't know how people do this that don't know the Lord or don't have a church family. I, I wish I knew how many times I'd heard that during my ministry. And you know what my answer is? I don't either. I don't either. I can't, I can't imagine how lonely it must feel to be experiencing something like you're experiencing if you, if you don't know Christ if you don't know that God's in control and you don't have people praying for you, I don't know. And so there's the advantage. We have the advantage of having the Word of God. And, and the people of God who are far from perfect, but who are under the influence of the Word of God, which makes a difference. This week I had... Um, dinner Connie and I did with uh, a, a couple that we support as a church, uh, and he, uh, it's Richard Smith, and he works with Reformed University Fellowship International, and uh, it's, a, it's a unique ministry. Uh, they, he works with internationals uh, up at Penn State, and um, the amazing thing about how strategic that ministry is is that you have leaders from other countries. You know, we talk about going uh, across the street and across the country and across the world. Well, just like Sunnyside that we heard earlier, uh, you know, here you have people, leaders from uh, various parts of the world coming there. And what difference could it make when, you know, if they come under the influence of the gospel, come to Christ and go back to their countries as leaders? who are educated in America. So that's, that's what he's working with. But he, he told me uh, one story about um, this uh, young man who he's, you know, trying to witness to of, of, of uh, Christ. 
And this young man was going to take a trip. Uh, uh, he, he said when they have breaks, a lot of them come from families with money, and so they're able to take trips and stuff. So, so this young man was going to go to Florida and then take another trip from there, and something fell through along the way. And so he's staying in a, in a hotel, and he tells the people there his story, and they begin to do things for him. They were, they were amazingly nice to him and helpful to him and so on. They, they felt for him, and uh, instead of just saying, well, sorry about that, you know, uh, see ya, they, they uh, did all these, these graceful things for him. Now, not that they were Christians, but his conclusion was this when he told Richard this story. He said, I think this happens in America because there are so many Christians. Now, he wasn't saying they were all Christians, but he was talking about the, the influence that it, it has, you know, which we think, oh, it's, it's gone away and all that, but somebody from another country seeing that. How much more so within the church, with all of our imperfections, with all of our failures, and yet there are people who know their need for God. And that's the beauty and that's the blessing. That's the advantage of being within the church. And then objection number two. He says, uh, <clears throat> how do, uh, uh, well, what he says in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So here's the question, I think. He's saying, how do human actions affect God's character? So <clears throat> here's the fact that he, he knows the Jews would come to grips with. Some don't come to faith. Does that mean <clears throat> that there's some flaw in <clears throat> sorry, God's plan or his word or perhaps his character? Does that reflect on God is really the question and his great plan. He says in uh, verse 4, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's, here's his answer, basically. Faithfulness is never diminished uh, God's faithfulness is never diminished by man's unfaithfulness. All right, so let's look at it. He starts out by saying, by no means. Now, there's, there's very little way that I can say that in English as strong as that is in the Greek. Some of you will remember the old King James at this point. When asked this question, the answer was, God forbid. So I, I want you to think when he's uh, asking this question uh, of the, the strongest thing you can think of. Ain't no way. Some of you would say that, okay? Perish the thought. Don't go there. And New York team, forget about it, okay? 
whatever the strongest thing you can think of, that's his answer. No way that that's the case. Then he does something that would be just stunning for the Jew. He picks an Old Testament figure, an Old Testament church member, to, to quote as his example. That Old Testament church member was one that I, I think we could say had the most prominent and public sin in the Old Testament since Adam. And that was David. And so here is, you know, of all the people he could quote about does this diminish God's faithfulness, the fact that we're unfaithful, he chooses David who sent the husband of Bathsheba to the front line so that he'd be killed and out of the way. Sent him to fight the ISIS of the day. And he knew it'd be horrible. And then he takes his, he, he's, he'd taken his wife, committed adultery, abused his powerful position. All awful things. And then he repented only after being confronted by Nathan. But David repented so deeply that we have his psalm that he wrote down of his repentance becomes the model for what real repentance looks like. In that psalm, he came to the conclusion, God against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he had sinned against, you know, uh, Uriah and his people and Bathsheba and all of the Jews to follow that would see him as the example, but, but compared to his offense toward God, he said, it's, it's really against you that I've sinned. And right after he said that, then he said this phrase that's being quoted. In Psalm 51, he said, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So to the Jewish mind, the ripples of that sin were so pervasive that they were still talking about it then and we still talk about it today. And what he is saying here is, God, you gave me every advantage and I failed. You have every right to judge me. And when you judge me, you will be righteous in doing so. In fact how we should see this is so far from this reflecting badly on, on God, the fact that he's unfaithful, it, it shows all the more how uh, much grace God has, how much mercy, how much love, and how he is going to doggedly 
pursue his plan in spite of unfaithfulness. Objection three. Is God unfair if he inflicts wrath on helpless sinners? He said it in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. So if unrighteousness serves the purpose of showing God's righteousness, is it even fair that he judges us? Does that make him unrighteous? Paul's answer again, God forbid. No way. By no means, verse 6. For then how could judge God judge the world? So here's what he does with that objection. He basically takes the one thing that the religious Jews and he would agree on, and that is that God has the right and is the one to judge the world. And so he's answering their objection by saying he wouldn't be allowed to judge anything. And so they would, in their own mind, answer that objection. Okay, well then I guess that won't be the case. By no means then how could God judge the world? Objection four. If our evil shows God's goodness, shouldn't we do evil? That fits with the last one. Verse seven. But if through my lie God's truth abounds in His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Do you get it? Here's what he's saying, basically. Well, if, if when I sin... Everyone sees His grace and His mercy and His love even more and sees the beauty of the gospel and restoration and and all of those things. When I sin, that's a good thing for Him. So maybe I should just keep on sinning. That's, That's what He's suggesting. And yet, His answer again impossible why not do evil the good may come think about uh, how God brought the redemption of his people out of evil acts he brought the redemption of his people out of Judas betraying Jesus So let's apply what some were accusing them of to that. Would anyone really think on the day of judgment that Judas would stand before God and say, well, God, yes, I betrayed Jesus. I left the faith. But look what good came from it. So in essence, I... I did all of mankind and even you a favor by sinning in that way. You see how perverse that would be? I mean, uh, who would even suggest that Judas could do that? And yet, that's what he's telling the Jews. Look, you, you can't. 
You're not going to keep sinning and using that as an excuse that I'm making God look better. And then he answers it by saying the last part of verse 8, their condemnation is just. If anyone says that, then they deserve to be condemned. So in terms of application, I want to jump ahead to next week but not deal with verse 9 because it's, it's really a transition verse. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And then he says, no, not at all. <laughs> For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now we're going to deal with that next week, but it's a connector between him dealing with these objections and then he's going to explain just how fallen uh, Jews and Greeks are. Jews and Greeks and all mankind really are with a string of verses from the Old Testament. Here's what we need to know. He didn't overlook sin. We read that earlier from the Confession of Faith. He didn't just say, it's okay. As a perfectly righteous and holy God, He wouldn't, He couldn't do that. But instead, He dealt with that sin. And He dealt with it by by the wrath that we all deserve being poured out upon His Son on the cross. And that's the Gospel here. Now I want to go back to objection number two with one more application. Objection number two was, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And so here's... Here's here's the question, back to bringing it to our our place and time. Does an unfaithful church void God's faithfulness? Do unfaithful Christ followers, does that void His plan or the truth of the Gospel? And the answer is, God forbid. No way. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ yet, I'm delighted you're here today. But one of the things that, that sometimes, and, and these objections fit with that, that sometimes those who aren't followers of Christ will say, well, I, you know, Jesus was fine, but I don't really like what I'm seeing in his followers. I don't really like what I what I see in the the church. The followers of Christ seem to be such a flawed bunch of people. And we here at St. Andrews would say, yeah, you're right. That's us. We, we never claimed anything different than that. That's what we would be. And so, here's what I would encourage you if that's one of your objections. 
not to focus on his followers, but focus on Christ himself. In the Scripture, in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus being the bridegroom. And we, the church, being his bride. It's one of my favorite illustrations. You don't judge the faithfulness of the bridegroom by the unfaithfulness of the bride. We, his people, are married to Christ not because we are faithful, but because He is faithful to us. And for those trusting in Christ alone, even in our failures, He uses us not because He needs to, but because of what a great God He is.